And now hear God's holy word from Ephesians chapter 4, continuing our study in this epistle. Pay close attention. These are the words of the Lord. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt, according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil." Nor let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolishness talking nor coarse jesting, but which are not fit, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you for your word, and we pray that as we hear what your servant, uh, the Apostle Paul, said and wrote to these Christians in Ephesus, that we would receive and hear, and that your word would penetrate our hearts, that you would rebuke us, that you would exhort us, that you would encourage us, that you would transform us as we hear your word today. So fill me with your spirit, Father. I am weak and I am insufficient for these things. These truths are great and powerful and convicting. I need your Holy Spirit right now to fill me as I try to communicate these things and fill us all with your Spirit that we might hear them. Father, uh, guide us now in Jesus' name. Amen. One thing that doesn't get nearly enough attention throughout uh, courtship or period of engagement or premarital counseling, one thing that gets overlooked is that when you get married, you're not just marrying another person, you're marrying a whole family. Now, in some sense, I understand you're not really marrying her father, you're not really marrying his mother, that's not really and truly uh, technically correct, but you are marrying into an entirely new family. And the person that you're marrying comes with the culture, 
the expectations, the habits, the perspectives of the family that raised them. And as a husband and wife, sorting through all those differences can be quite challenging. But on top of all that, you are entering into this new tribe of people yourself. You were raised in one tribe, and now you're marrying into another tribe of people with a different language, with different customs, with different habits, with different traditions. And sometimes it can be very much like entering a foreign country. There are things that you've never experienced before manners and customs, some of which you quickly embrace, that you find surprisingly comfortable to you. I found growing up that uh, my family's uh, practices around Christmas and feasting and those things, they were, they were not that great. We didn't really have good things. We didn't really have good traditions. So when I entered my wife's family, I found there were all kinds of beautiful, lovely things that I wrapped my arms around, even though they were initially confusing. I thought, wow, you do this. And, but now, it's wonderful, and we've incorporated those same things into our family traditions now. So there are, there are things that you initially and, and, and quickly embrace, but there are other things that seem very alien, other things that you're going to have to adapt to. Perhaps you have to learn a new language. Growing up in your family, when you said this thing, it meant this. But in this new family, it means something completely opposite. And to your spouse, it means something very different. So... Fitting into your new family and living with your husband or living with your wife requires a reorientation, a redirection. There are things you must stop doing. There are things that you can't do anymore. And there are things that you have to start doing. And I bet all of us have funny stories about the things you learned the hard way when you first got married. Our lives as Christians have a similar trajectory. We leave our, we leave our natural family whose head was Adam and we join a brand new family whose head is Jesus. And so in, in making that transition from the family of Adam to the family of Jesus, we have to learn new customs, a new language. We leave behind the manners and the customs and the tradition of the old family, and we embrace a new way of life, a, a new way of speaking, a new way of walking. And, and Paul refers to it in, in his letter to the Ephesian Christians. He talks about it as a way of walking. He keeps bringing up this word, walk. Like you all have your own gait, you have your own way of walking, there is a way of walking that exhibits Christ. There is a way of walking that shows that you're a member of this new family. We used to walk, Paul says, in a destructive, aimless pattern under the old creation, but in the new creation we walk according to the pattern of Christ. So in the first three chapters of this letter, to the Ephesian church, Paul lays out this extraordinary wealth of theological information about the riches and the inheritance that we have in Jesus and how in Jesus God has brought together heaven and earth, how in Jesus God has brought together Jew and Gentile, how everything is being brought together and made new and made whole in Jesus. Now, around chapter four, Paul turns a corner and he begins to teach us what that means for our walk. How does that change the way that we live? We who have been called saints, and again, anytime you hear the word saint, understand what we're talking about. Saints are those who have sanctuary access. You are saints. You have been called up into the heavenlies. You have access to the throne room of God. He has shared the mysteries of his eternal counsel with you and shared them with you in such a way that you don't keep them secret. You talk about them all the time. You, you spread those mysteries out all over the place and you share them. That's what it means to be saints. Now, those of you who are saints who have this high calling 
and this high status, you have a certain walk. Again, why I've titled this series Mystery and Manners. We've spent the first three chapters looking at the mysteries, and the mysteries are going to come up again, but the mysteries of God's counsels, and now the manners that flow out of those mysteries. As people who have access to those mysteries, how do we, how do we walk? What are our manners? So we dive in with the Apostle Paul, and and this is going to be one of those sermons. I'm not going to have three points of application at the end. This is application all the way through. Every turn, there's a new application. So let's, let's read through and listen to what our brother Paul says. Verse 17 of chapter 4, he says, This I say therefore in testifying the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness and greediness. Well, Paul, I mean, give us time to catch up. He, he piles on these descriptions of the condition that we're in when we're alienated from the life of God. He, he just, he, he says they're darkened, they're ignorant, they're blind, they're past feeling, they're given over to lewdness, they're corrupt, they're greedy. Why does he call them ignorant? I just want to focus on that uh, in particular. Why are they ignorant? Well, it's not that they haven't read the right books. It's not that they're lazy with their homework. It's not that they're bad students. The hardness of their hearts have made them ignorant. Sin makes you stupid. Sin makes you really, really dumb. Because when you're given over to the lusts of the flesh, you are, you are buying into an upside down value system. You are, you are rejecting what God has said and done and declared is what pleases him. And you are owning an upside down law code. And now everything that you do and everything that you say and think is upside down and inside out. The hardness of their heart has made them ignorant and sin corrupts their understanding and makes it impossible to think clearly, to exercise discernment. So if you go to the book of Proverbs, you find all this instruction on the dumb decisions you make when you don't fear God, when you reject wisdom. Not only do those alienated from the life of God, not only do they make colossally bad decisions, and you've known people who go from one really bad decision to the next one really dumb thing to the next. Not only do they do that, not only do they have extremely poor judgment, but in their darkness, he says, they give, them over, they give themselves over to more and more perverse forms of stimulation and inter entertainment. Underlying all of this is a lack of contentment in the world that God made. They're not satisfied with things as, as God has set them up. They're not, they, they can't rest in being the man or the woman that God created them to be. And so they have to pervert things and they have to twist things until they can't feel anymore. He says they're past feeling. You, you, you enter into some perverse pursuit and it feels good and it, and it seems good for a while, but all the joy seeps out of it and it's no longer any fun. So you have to find an, an escalatingly worse, more perverse form of entertainment and you, and you indulge it until that's not fun and that's not titillating anymore. And you get, you get numb and you get calloused and you're past feeling. You work harder and harder for the next thrill, the next high, and the return is less and less. The yield is worse and worse and there's less satisfaction and more boredom. And that's the description of those who are alienated from the life of God. 
but he turns a corner. He says in verse 20, You have not so learned Christ, if indeed you've heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. That's not what you've been taught, Paul says. I love the phrase, you, you have learned Christ. I, I, I uh, love that, love that turn, that, that Jesus himself is the substance of Christian teaching. Know Jesus and you know how to live. Know him and you know what you need to know. Meditate on him and you, you have it. But this slow spiral that he's just described, this spiral into ignorance and gloom and desolation and callousness, this deadness, he says that doesn't describe your life. You have been taught by Jesus. The truth is in him and you are in him and you don't need to live that old way. Verse 22, so that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God, in true righteousness and holiness. There's new creation language all over the place here. When God takes hold of you, he says, let there be light, just as he took hold of the creation in its chaos and darkness. He said, let there be light. And then there was order and the darkness was pushed back. He does the same thing with you when he makes you a new creation. He takes a hold of you and he says, let there be light. And then you move from the darkness of the pagan world into the light. And now that old man, the old Adam, the old creation, only grows more corrupt. It doesn't grow in order. It doesn't grow in beauty. It grows only in lust and in perversion. The new man, the new self becomes more godly. And what does it mean to be godly? It means to be like God. It means to love the things he loves, delight in the things that he delights in, laugh at the things that he laughs at, and to hate the things that he hates. That's what it means to be, be godly. Now, how do we how do we grow in this way? What does it mean to be truthful and righteous and holy in the way that he's describing? Where do you go in the Bible to find out what pleases God? Where do you go to find out what it means to be godly? To find out what God loves and what God hates? Well, the first place you would go, I hope, you start with the Ten Commandments. And this is what Paul is about to do throughout the next several verses. He's going to point us to one commandment after another. And I can hear you protest if you've been following along so far. You might protest and say, but, 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 Brother Paul, I thought you just said that the whole law was obliterated in Christ. Didn't you just say that a, a little while ago? The whole law is obliterated and abolished in Christ. And in Colossians, in your letter to the Colossians, you said the law was nailed to the cross. So, so why are you now taking us through the Ten Commandments? I thought, I thought this was all defunct. I thought it was over with. Well, remember, as we walk through that, we saw how the old covenant is abolished. The old covenant uh, is no longer in effect as a means of, of relating to God. It's, the old covenant is no longer the covenant by which we approach God and relate to him. So we're not bound by the laws of purity. We're not bound by the ritual animal sacrifices, the dietary laws. All of those things are abolished. However, the law is not abolished as a revelation of God. Uh, it is not abolished as a means of showing us what God values, what he loves, and the kinds of things that he hates. It's, it still shows us how God thinks. Now, of course, Jesus fulfilled the law. In fulfilling the law, in obeying it perfectly, he personified the law. 
And when he was nailed to the cross, the law was nailed to the cross. The law died, and then the law was resurrected with Jesus in a whole new way. Now we have what Paul refers to in other places as the law of Christ. The law has been transformed, and, and everything is there, but everything has changed. And so what Paul is going to do now is he's going to take us through some of the commandments and make new covenant applications of these commandments. He's showing us this is, this is what a truthful, righteous, holy life looks like. This is the law of Christ. This is obedience in the new covenant. Now, he doesn't take the commandments in order, and it sure would be neat if he would just take commandment one and give us a little commentary, and then commandment two and give us a little commentary. He doesn't do that. He starts with nine. And then he kind of works backwards for a little while from there. And then he skips forward to 10. Why he does that escapes me. Uh, one of my friends, if you know what a chiasm is, one of my friends has, has put this section in a chiasm and he says things he says at the beginning match things he says at the end. And then you come in one step and it matches there. It's very poetic. Uh, if you want that, uh, I'm sure that that's available and you can look it up. Uh, but I, I'm not, I'm not going to go into the structure other than just to say he gives us these commandments. They're not in order, but we're going to take them in the order that he gave them to us. And he's inspired, and he does this by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to submit to his wisdom in the order that he gives them. So he takes us through this, and he begins with the ninth commandment. What is the ninth commandment? Thou shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, right? Uh, that's, that's the ninth commandment. So he says in verse 25, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. The context of the ninth commandment, which has to do with bearing witness against your neighbor, the context of the commandment is the law court. Where do you bear witness? You bear witness before a judge... You give your perspective or, or your thoughts on a situation or, or what you witnessed to either exonerate someone or to convict them. Either way, God's law requires your testimony in a law court situation to be absolutely reliable because your words are powerful. Your words mean something. So God requires you to judge with truth and then speak with truth and do not bear false witness. Do not lie against your neighbor in a courtroom situation. Now, of course, we extrapolate from that and we take his application from there that we always, even outside of a courtroom, we always use our words in a way to uphold our neighbor, uphold his life, and protect him and his possessions, and not to tear them down. We always use our words in life-giving ways, not in destructive ways. So Paul builds on the ninth commandment, and he adds to that, why do we do this? Why do we not lie? It's because we belong to each other. We're like uh, Velcro, where the little hooks and the little fuzzy part, they just stick together, right? We're, we're, we're bound together. Well, Velcro's not a great example, right? Super glue, maybe. I'm reaching here. I'm looking for something that's sick. Maybe you can find something better. We, we're we're in, in each, and there's this indwelling with each other that, that sticks us together. We belong to each other. We have a common life with each other, with our neighbor, with our brother. So because we're stuck together, we use words to build each other up and not to undercut each other, not to undermine each other. So truthfulness does not mean using truth in a hurtful way. You can say something that's absolutely true and absolutely uncalled for. You can say something that's 100% factual and 100% out of place and 
uh, not helpful at all. There are ways to say things that are truthful, but not fitting. Now, if I say your shirt is really ugly, and I'm not looking at anybody individually, but if your shirt is really ugly and your tie really doesn't match it, that's probably not the first thing I want to say to you when I, when I greet you. That may be true. It may be objectively true that you have a terrible taste in, in, uh, in fashion and sense of dressing yourself. You're really bad at it. That may be objectively true. However, saying that doesn't build you up. I may be taking you aside and say, hey, buddy, you want to go shopping sometime? I got some pointers for you. Maybe that, maybe that's helpful. But you see, uh, it's better to keep silent than to say things that are only going to hurt people. Uh, uh, something may be 100% true and 100% destructive. So, for example, if you're hiding spies in Jericho and somebody knocks on your door and says, do you have spies here? You, what do you say? Well, if you're faithful, you say, no, there are no spies here. See, if you're a midwife in Egypt and you're protecting pregnant women, uh, uh, Jewish women in, in Egypt, and they say, well, well these, these babies, as soon as they're born, I want to make sure that you kill the baby boys. And you say, I don't know any pregnant women. I don't know. They, I mean, I hear about these Jewish women having babies, but they happen so quick, I can't even get there before, before the babies are born. See, telling the truth to people who are going to destroy innocent lives is not righteous, it's wicked, and it's foolish. The purpose of truth is always building up your neighbor. It's always preserving his life. So we're prohibited by the ninth commandment from making statements that are true but destructive or, or untrue and twisted in a way to bring undue shame and dishonor. And we're forbidden from withholding the truth when it could save an innocent person. The principle is that we always orient our speaking toward the building up and the lifting up of others. We speak the truth with our neighbor and on behalf of our neighbor because we are one body. We are, we are together. We belong together. He says, be angry and do not sin. And he's quoting a piece of Psalm 4 there. And if you read Psalm 4, the context is that, that David has been slandered and he's trying to sort out how to deal with it. And the gist of the psalm is that when people abuse you and say things are false, you don't say anything back. He says, you meditate. Uh, what does Psalm uh, 4 say? He says, um, David says, be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. So the, so the instruction in that Psalm is when you are offended and when you are slandered, meditate in your heart on your bed and talk to the Lord about it and ask him to deal with it. But you don't try to answer back for, for, for bad. You don't return toe to toe false accusations. Let God vindicate you. Now that's, that's real hard to do. That's, that's really difficult to do because we want to defend ourselves. We want to defend ourselves because we don't believe God will vindicate us. We don't believe God will defend us. We don't trust that his law court is final and that, that he judges, judges everything fairly and finally. Let God vindicate you is the, is the point there. So Paul is quoting that psalm knowing that the human impulse is to strike back when we're hurt or when we're falsely accused. But he says, be angry, but don't sin. Keep your lips sealed. Be righteously angry, but keep your lips sealed until you talk to the Lord and then get it taken care of that way. Don't run first to talk to other people about the problem because he says that will give the devil an opportunity. The devil wants the destruction of the church. And his favorite way to do that is through the misuse of the tongue. People get angry, they get offended, and when they do, they talk 
too much. They don't appeal to the Lord in prayer. And Paul's advice is be careful. It's possible to be right. It's possible to have righteous anger, but it's also possible to go off half cocked and run your mouth and create a bigger problem. Only when you've done some self-examination on the righteousness of your anger, which is so tricky. We are so good at self-deception, convincing ourselves that we're always right, that we're always the ones who have been sinned against. We convince ourselves that we're right. And, and so we need time and we need space to work through that and pray about it and ask for God to convict us of our own sins and confess our own sins and see only when you've talked to the Lord are you in a good frame to do something about it. But you do it now in a way where you don't run the risk of falsely accusing your neighbor and tearing up the church. Well, now he moves to uh, uh, the Eighth Commandment. I said he's moving backwards. He starts with the Ninth and he moves back to the Eighth Commandment, do not steal. He says in verse 28, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt, and that word there is rotten, let no rotten word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. At every point here, Paul is going to make an application how you can break each commandment with just your tongue. You think that that the only way that I can break the commandment is by acting out and doing something physically. But, but Paul makes new covenant applications say, here's how you break this with your tongue. Here's how you break this commandment with your mind, just as Jesus did, right? Uh, with the uh, uh, laws on adultery and the laws on, on murder. He says, there, Jesus said, there's a way to hate your brother in your heart and, and break the commandment against murder, right? And Paul makes this application. At just about every point, he says, this is how you use your tongue. So here he talks about literally stealing. And secondly, he talks about using your tongue to rot out the value of your neighbor's life and of his home. So first he says, the, the way to cure the tendency to steal is to work hard. A man who wears himself out working hard is less apt to fall into a pattern of stealing. In other words... Uh, in the converse of that, you work hard so that you can have something to share. Stop stealing so that you can work hard and have something to give. The book of Deuteronomy, as you well know, we went through this a couple years ago when we went through the Ten Commandments. We always dipped into the book of Deuteronomy because the book of Deuteronomy is full of applications of the Ten Commandments. And so when you're working through Deuteronomy and you get to the prohibition against stealing, that's where you get the gleaning laws. You, under, you remember the gleaning laws are where if you've got a field, you don't, you don't harvest all the way to the edges. You leave the edges for those in need, for the widow, the orphan, whoever, whoever needs. Uh, and they can come, like Ruth, like, like she did for Naomi. She came and gleaned the edges of the field. Well, Paul makes the same connection here. That was Deuteronomy. That was Moses' application. Of the, of the law. Now, Paul makes that same connection. He says, work hard so that you have something left over to give someone in need. So joining the new creation family, being a new man means that, that we have this reorientation, this new culture. Don't steal and don't take. No, work and give and share. And he makes a comment on how you can steal with your tongue. You can tear down someone rep, someone's reputation. You can tear down their house. You can tear down their livelihood with rotten words, rotten communication. Or you can build up someone's life with words of ed edification. Our, our tendency in the old creation 
is to take every opportunity to cut each other down as if by cutting other people down, that builds us up. It's some kind of weird economy that we have in our minds that if we cut someone down, that makes us better. We do it subtly. We do it creatively. We get real good at it. But we criticize and we accuse people in, in such a way that undermines their, their lives and their livelihood. God's law requires you to build up your neighbor's estate with your words. Deuteronomy is full of laws like this. Deuteronomy is full of laws like if you see your neighbor's animal straying from the pen, you don't, you don't clam up. You don't go back inside your house. You say something about it. You, you tell your neighbor. You get the animal. You take it back. You don't, you don't be quiet. If you see your, your neighbor's property or his animal injured or damaged, you speak up. You say something about it. You see, there's a way of, of building up our neighbor with our words. You don't just do the bare minimum of respecting your neighbor's property, but you go out of your way to help him build it up. So we do this all the time, don't we, as a church body? If you see a good deal on something, you know, ladies do this, hey, I saw a good deal, and you let other people know about it. Hey, you, you need to go check this out. Or if I see something that may help you in your business or your work, or if I know you're looking for a car, and I say, boy, I saw a good deal, you help each other build up our lives and build up our houses rather than using our words to rot them out. See, I want you to do well. I really do. I want you to do really well because then someday if I have a need, maybe you can help me. See, if we're one and we have a common life together, cutting you down kills me. Cutting you down robs me too. Now we have to move quickly and there's so much more to say on each one of those, but, but we've got we've to keep uh, trucking. Verse 6, I'm sorry, the 6th commandment, not verse 6. We're going to be verse 31. He goes to the sixth commandment. He says, do not kill. And when Deuteronomy makes application of this commandment, it regards not only acting deliberately uh, with, with homicidal intent, which is prohibited. You don't, you don't act deliberately with, with murderous thoughts. But it also deals with acting carefully in order to protect other people's lives. So if you're chopping wood, this is the example that is given. If you're chopping wood and the axe head flies off, you're responsible for that. So be careful with your acts. Watch out with your, with your acts. There are all these OSHA standards in God's law. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. So, so Paul's going to comment now on the sixth commandment uh, with Jesus. He's harmonizing with Jesus here. Don't kill, but also don't hate. Don't let murderous words come out of your mouth. Verse 31, little bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. These are all things we have to stop and they all have to go away. All bitterness has to go. Bitterness is a hard-hearted condition where nobody can soften you up. Uh, bitterness is where you've taken an offense that someone has committed against you and you have internalized it like you're a pearl and you just keep covering over it and over it with hurt and anger and offense and you keep adding to it and it grows and it grows and it grows and you keep nursing it and you keep thinking back over it. You don't let it go. You don't, you don't deal with it the right way by, by either you know, confessing it or dealing with the person who offended you. You just keep nursing it. 
And you can tell that you're bitter about something because when you're bitter about something, you can remember every detail of the offense. You know, forgetfulness is a wonderful thing. Forgetfulness is a beautiful thing. You know, I'm sure you've had disagreements in your marriages and you've had disagreements with family members where you can't remember what the fight was about. I remember we had a disagreement, but I don't even remember what it was about. And that's a good thing. That's a wonderful thing because you've forgotten about it and it's, you're not bitter about it and it's gone, right? But the things that you're bitter about, you remember every detail. You remember every word that was said. You remember what shirt you were wearing. You remember the time of day. You remember the kid came into the room and said that thing, that, and then you responded. You, you remember every little detail because you're bitter. You've rehearsed it over and over and over in your mind, and you're holding it close to your chest. Well, bitterness is, a, is this terrible condition that, that no matter how kind people are to you, the ice isn't going to be broken. So if you're, if you're going to be broken, you're going to have to be broken in a different way. You're going to have to be brought down low. It's a scary, dangerous position to be in to be bitter. You get most bitter toward the people who are closest to you. Are any of you bitter about Saddam Hussein or Kim Jong-un? Anybody bitter about them? No, they're wicked. They're evil, you know, but, but we're not bitter. People far away from you, no matter how evil they are, you're not bitter about them. You get bitter about the things that people have done to you who are closest to you. The people who you've placed your expectations in and they have failed to meet those expectations. And you get better. Husbands and wives nurse bitterness toward each other. Children nurse bitterness toward parents. This root of bitterness gets dug in and now you become impossible to communicate with and you start doing things that are real weird and real kooky and real strange out of this immature defense of your little bitter pearl that you're holding on. And I'm telling you, you've got to rip that out and you've got to put it before the Lord. At this point, it's not even about the offense that the other person did towards you. It's not even about that. You need to even forget that. Tear this out, put it before the Lord and confess to God your bitterness because it's killing you. It's destroying you. It's tearing down your soul. It's ruining your mind. You need to get rid of it. So he talks about bitterness. He also says wrath. Put that away. Wrath is the initial outburst when you're hurt or offended and you want to hit back or escalate the argument. Hurt someone as bad as they hurt you. Uh, someone once said, um, I thought this was great. We always think twice before we speak because the first response is always the first Adam speaking. Uh, the second response may be more likely to be wisdom. Now, some of us, we need to think four times before we speak or think six times before we speak, right? But, but think twice. Don't ever say the first thing that you want to come out of your mouth. No matter how quick-witted, no matter how, how much of a burn that would be, no matter how, much, how, how, how awesome that would be to say that thing, don't say the first thing. That's, that's forbidden. Uh, I, I think that's what, um, in anger, obviously, is what I'm talking about. You can be funny or witty, but not angry. Anger is a more settled fury. Anger is when you stay mad. You may be able to control the initial outburst, the initial impulse to lose your temper, but anger is when you get mad and you stay mad and you just keep fuming. He talks about clamor. Clamor refers to the loud, self-assertive person who when they're mad or, or, or maligned, they let everyone know about it and they spread their grievances all over. Evil speaking, he says. Evil speaking is cutting people down. Malice is an expression of evil feelings about someone. Oh, I hate them. I wish they would die. You know, this, this kind of stuff. 
The, this whole list that he gives us are ways that we can break the sixth commandment against murder with our tongue. The solution that he gives us is to be kind, to be tenderhearted, to be forgiven just as God has forgiven you. If you remember the great debt that you have been forgiven, then it's easier to be humble and be patient with each other. Walk in love just, just as Jesus has loved us and given himself for us. There's the key. How do you overcome the desire to want to kill other people, whether physically or with your tongue? You sacrifice yourself. You don't kill them. You die, right? You, you, that's, that's the answer. He says, just remember, uh, be imitators of God. In 5.2, he says, walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. You don't kill with your tongue or with your actions. You sacrifice yourself and you do good to those who hurt you. Um, boy, this, uh, I've got a lot of material here and not a lot of time left. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to stop at this point and I'm going to say, notice that in, in every, at every turn, we're going to pick up here next week, at every turn, we're being asked to look at what repentance is. Repentance is stop stealing Start working so that you can give. Stop tearing other people down with your words. Stop rotting out their houses and their livelihood with their words. Stop destroying them. No, turn around and build them up with words of edification. Stop nursing bitterness and start forgiving just as Christ forgave you. Do you see, do you see? That's, what, that's what the substance of repentance is. It's not just that I stop doing certain things. Anyone, any... A uh, pagan can exercise a modicum of self-discipline. I mean, these people, they don't eat meat or they don't eat, you know, potato chips or they don't eat, you know, Oreos. You know, that, stopping doing something is, doesn't take some kind of spiritual power, right? You can do that in your own power. But turning and doing what is right and good requires all of the spiritual wealth and the spiritual resources that we've looked at in the first three chapters of Ephesians. And that is what happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is what is, is given to you as saints by your status and your position. These are the things that please God. This is what makes Him happy. And if, and if there's anything that we want, it ought to be making our Creator and our Redeemer happy. This is what pleases Him. This is what brings the blessings of the kingdom upon us. And we're going to put a pin in it, and we're going to pick up right there next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for directing us by your Holy Spirit and guiding us and strengthening us. And Father, we do pray that we would do only what is pleasing, that our words would build each other up and not tear each other down, that you would guard us from wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking, that you would stop our tongues and that you would give us by your Spirit the ability to root out that root of bitterness and to lay it before you to confess it and that you would step on it and crush it and destroy it so that we may be whole. Father, we do not want to walk in ignorance. We do not want to walk in the ways of the old creation. We want to walk in Christ. So teach us Christ. Teach us by your Holy Spirit. And we ask you this in the name of Jesus. Amen.